I thought for too long, the person on the street and um, and scientists as well have been overly focused on the dark side of human nature, mm. on our propensity for violence and evil and mendacity and selfishness. And I thought that the bright side had been denied the attention it deserves because equally we are capable of these amazing things like love and friendship and cooperation and teaching. I mean, we're really quite an amazing species actually. And I, and I thought that as well, I thought that the, the benefits of living socially, the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs. That is to say, I think across the arc of evolution, um, the good must have outweighed the bad. Because if, if every time I came near you, you, you stole from me or you lied to me or you, or you uh, injured me or you killed me, I would be better off living atomistically, you know, apart from you. So we evolved to be social. We evolved to be social in particular ways. And I think natural selection equipped us, endowed us with particular good qualities, which are required for us to live socially and which are also rightly seen as, um, as good. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 104. And this episode is with Nicholas Christakis, who is the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University, where he is also the director of the Human Nature Lab and co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. Nicholas is both a sociologist and a physician. So after completing his undergraduate at Yale in biology, he also received an MD and an MPH from Harvard and then a PhD in sociology from the University of Pennsylvania. In addition, in addition to all of this, Nicholas has written numerous books. But in this episode, we talk about one in particular, his second to last book, and that's Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. And we start off with some more theoretical ideas that underlie the investigation. And the first is the notion, which you might be familiar with if you've read much Richard Dawkins, of the extended phenotype, which refers to the way in which genes, our genes, other animals' genes, any genes, interact with and affect the environment. And then we move on to the way in which genes manifest themselves, not only in what I'll refer to now as uh, more static traits like hair color or height, but in behaviors or cognitive faculties like the capacity for love, for instance, or a bias for preferring to associate with people in your quote unquote in group. And then from here, we move on to the main thrust of Nicholas's work, which is the idea that there are a number of cultural universals that have a genetic evolutionary origin and that their function, their proper function, contributes to good, healthy, and flourishing societies. So in the description, I've, I've got links to Nicholas's website. It's at humannaturelab.net and his Twitter, N.A. Christakis, and also naturally, to the book blueprint so i have to mention as always that likes subscribes these things are so helpful and there is now also a discord which you can find through my website robinsonairheart.com if you want to make comments or suggest guests or this sort of thing or if you want to go to robinsonsfashionempire.com and buy one of these cool new shirts that 
I made. I actually told somebody, somebody came up to me yesterday at the gym. I was wearing a different version and said, that's a really cool shirt. And I was like, oh, I made it. And he looked at the stitching and was like, that's really impressive. And I said, I, no, I didn't make it in that kind of way. But now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Nicholas. There are plenty of threads to Blueprint, but a central premise of the book is that while there are myriad differences in traits among individuals and societies across all sorts of dimensions, every human being nonetheless possesses an evolutionarily ingrained disposition to make and contribute to a good society. Before we get into the specifics of the book and what that statement I just made entails, I'm wondering what made you want to write about this and what brought the idea to your attention in the first place? Well, the, the uh, sort of overarching philosophical motivation for writing it, or, or maybe I would say more properly, probably ideological motivation for writing it, was that I thought for too long, the person on the street and, um, and scientists as well have been overly focused on the dark side of human nature, on our propensity for violence and evil and mendacity and selfishness. And I thought that the bright side had been denied the attention it deserves because equally we are capable of these amazing things like love and friendship and cooperation and teaching. I mean, we're really quite an amazing species, actually. And I and I thought that, as well, I thought that the, the benefits of living socially, the benefits of a connected life, must have outweighed the costs. That is to say, I think across the arc of evolution, um, the good must have outweighed the bad. Because if, if every time I came near you, you you stole from me, or you lied to me, or you, or you uh, injured me, or you killed me, I would be better off living atomistically, you know, apart from you. So we evolved to be social. We evolved to be social in particular ways. And I think natural selection equipped us, endowed us with particular good qualities, which are required for us to live socially, and which are also rightly seen as, um, as good. So that, I think, was the overarching ideological motivation. The, the empirical motivation was that in my laboratory, I had been studying, have been for 20 years now, studying social networks and, and human social interactions. And the myriad um, determinants of and consequences of human social interaction. And social interaction and, social, and, the, and the networks that they give rise to, these, these ornate, magnificent, beautiful mathematical structures that exist in nature outside ourselves, right? We, we humans are obliged to make these networks, just like ants are obliged to make ant colonies and bees are obliged to make beehives. We, we make these ornate networks, which are astonishingly beautiful and interesting and frankly, astonishingly consistent around the world. And these, these networks serve a purpose. And as I was been looking at them over the last 20 years and as I've been studying their evolutionary origins and and um, and various uh, as I said determinants and consequences of networks it became very clear that networks are interconnected with our capacity for social learning and teaching the fact that we transmit information which ultimately is the root of our capacity for culture 
which is ultimately at the root of our capacity for, for wealth and survival, frankly, and also is related to our capacity for cooperation. The particular structure of these networks and their existence is deeply related to how we work together. So, so, so those empirical questions that my lab was engaging, I think, prompted deeper thinking about what's going on. And, um, and, and so that's, those were the origins of the book. Let's say there was an ideological project or a philosophical project and an empirical project that animated the book, which, by the way, took about 10 years uh, to, to do because it's not the only thing I'm, I, I, I am doing. Yeah, well, it shows in the quality and, and depth of the research that goes into the book. But I have a, a couple of responses to the things you've said so far. First, though, you mentioned that we've for so long been focused on on the dark side of humanity. I just had Steven Pinker on the podcast, and it sounds like you two have a serious affinity in this sense that we've neglected the positives of humanity and its progress. Yeah, I count I count Steven as a personal friend. And um and I, um, of course, am very um, engaged by his thinking and writing and have been for a long time. Um, and actually, I, if I may um, hazard a kind of um, symmetry and contrast between some of the ideas he's been discussing and some of the ideas that Blueprint engages, it would be the following. You know, what, what, what Stephen and others are, have been arguing is that is that since the Enlightenment, there have been a number of philosophical moves and technological advances that have improved the predicament of humankind. So, so we have a kind of philosophical efflorescence uh, during the Enlightenment uh, with ideas about the equality of human beings, about democracy, uh, and, and that these principles, you know, originating in Northern Europe, uh, spreading around the world, unevenly applied, imperfectly realized. I recognize, of course, we still had colonialism. We still had slavery. We took a while for women's rights to catch up and so on. Although J.S. Mills writes this magnificent book, The Subjection of Women, which is, you know, far-sighted, like a feminist book, a hundred years. Actually, there were others talking about that too. But anyway, um, so we have these philosophical ideas, this efflorescence. And of course, we have these scientific advances, electricity, magnetism, the steam engine, and so on. And that in combination, these have propelled a kind of improvement in the predicament of humankind, Stephen argues, and others argues, and others argue, such that it is absolutely the case, the world is better now. We are, we are richer, we are freer, we are healthier, we live longer, we are more peaceful. Uh, and and that, um, and that these, these benefits, this reality of the predicament of humankind is rightly laid at the feet of these, this inflection that took place. I think all of that's true as an empirical matter. But what I'm arguing is that deeper, more powerful, more ancient forces are propelling a good society that stretch back hundreds of thousands of years. In fact, if you look at the evolution of our species uh, over, you know, our particular species that certainly goes back 200,000 and, and increasingly we're thinking 300,000 years, that we evolved all of these fantastic qualities 
that endow us and equip us to live well together. And and as I as I kind of uh, conclude in the book, the arc of our evolutionary history is long, but it bends towards goodness. And so and so I see these efforts as as parallel efforts. One in blueprint is arguing that there are these ancient predilections that have been shaped by natural selection that undergird human behavior and that have been there and evolving for hundreds of thousands of years. And then, of course, you have the more recent historical and cultural overlay, which, um, you know, also is crucially important, but is distinct. Mm -hmm. Well, the second thing I wanted to comment on centers just on our evolutionary origin and this idea you expressed a few minutes ago that just like ants are obliged to make their colonies, we're obliged to make our social networks. And this leads to one bit of context I'd like to settle before we continue. So I'm sure everyone listening is familiar with the idea that our genes play a major role in determining our phenotype. So our observable characteristics, the other large player being our environment, but they may be less familiar with the extended phenotype, which I, I think you mentioned that in the book that it's a term introduced by Richard Dawkins, but which roughly refers to the idea that our genes also determine the way we interact with and alter our environment. So I'm wondering if you could flesh this idea out a bit more. So there, I mean, there are some great examples in your book, uh, spider webs come to mind, but it's important for the understanding of how our genes, how genes carried by an individual affect societies. So, um, so the intellectual history here is very interesting to me. I don't know if it'll be interesting to you or your listeners. Uh, I think so it will be around around two thousand and um, I don't know two thousand and five, two thousand and seven, somewhere in there. Actually, it was before the uh, the two thousand and eight election, presidential election. Uh, my uh, co a colleague of mine, James Fowler, and I had been doing a lot of work on social networks, and we had just done a study, a, a, a twin study, uh, looking at a sort of a behavior genetic study, looking at the idea that our genes might cause us to shape our social networks. And 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 and, and in its most limited sense, that's a very simple claim. Like, for example, every listener is probably familiar with the idea that. Some children are born shy and some children are born gregarious. People vary in their taste for friendship, for example. This is not a, a radical claim nor particularly innovative. But we had done some work in behavior genetics showing, for example, that if you had Tom, Dick, and Harry in a room, whether uh, Tom was friends with Dick depended not just on Tom's genes or on, on, on Dick's genes, but on, on Harry's genes. You know, whether you and your neighbor are friends with each other depends on my genes. H how can this be? Well, we had some evidence to suggest that it, that your friendship, you you and your friend, might depend on my proclivity to introduce you two to each other. That people, for example, might knit the social network around them together, brokering introductions, for example, among other people. Therefore, my genes play a role in the structure of the social network outside my body, just like, for example, a bird might be have a propensity to knit twigs together to make a nest with particular characteristics. So we were doing this kind of research, and it's a it's a body of work that I continue to do to the present day, looking at the 
with other collaborators, but and looking at the at the kind of evolutionary biology and physiology of friendship. Um, you know, what are the genetic antecedents and physiologic antecedents to and physiologic consequences of and over the long arc of our evolution, the genetic consequences of of friendship. So I we've done this paper, and uh, I was uh, uh, actually in uh, at the University of Virginia giving a talk uh, just before the presidential election, and uh, all of a sudden I was just struck by by how much bigger this idea was than I had realized that that. Our bodies, the, the, the impact of our genes didn't just shape the structure and function of our bodies, didn't just shape the structure and function of our minds, but also could shape the structure and function of our of our of our social worlds. Of course, E.O. Wilson had been work done a ton of work on 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 um on um on this on related topics, but there was a very specific meaning to this topic that 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 our genes could shape something outside our body. And at the time, I had done some reading about how some classic papers about in psychiatry and in, in, in uh, behavior genetics, whereby psychiatrists had become interested in what they call endophenotypes. So, for example, a propensity to anxiety that might be inside your body and is not manifest. So I thought, well, really what we're thinking about here is what I would call exophenotypes. And, and I was really captivated with this idea. I thought this was just a fantastic idea. You know, like how, how did I stumble on this incredible, you know, idea? And then very soon thereafter, I read a book by Richard Dawkins called The Extended Phenotype, wherein he had basically had this idea like 20 years earlier, which was really dispiriting. You know? <laughs> like, I was like, you know, it's like, it was such a good idea. And of course, he had had it, you know, much earlier. This happens all the time, by the way, in the history of ideas and in science. And uh, it was a really a, both a reassuring but hard lesson for me. But anyway, there were certain ways in which, in our hands, the notion of an ex exophenotype was slightly different than what Richard had been arguing. And also, in our case, Richard, this magnificent book, The Extended Phenotype, um, is a theoretical exercise, and there was no empirical evidence in the book. Whereas... We had, and other labs around the world, by the way, had begun to accrue evidence of the um, fundamentally genetic nature of the extended phenotype. So, so that's the origin of, of the, you know, sort of a chance, a twin study of sociality, uh, chance reading of a papers about endophenotypes, a kind of metaphoric leap because of my familiarity with the Greek language. Well, if they're endophenotypes, maybe they're exophenotypes. Uh, and then, um, and that kind of you know expansion in my mind about like what could be going on there. Then the discovery, of course, of Dawkins' incredibly important, much early, much earlier work, and uh, and so on. But we then spent a lot of time actually hunting down this idea and finding examples, and and many other labs were doing the same thing. And the and the classic examples are ones you mentioned. For example, a spider. You know, if if natural selection shaped the mouth parts in the front of the spider to get bigger, to catch more animals, we would very trivially accept that as the workings of genetics and natural selection. But the spider on the other end of its body with its spinnerets can create what is basically a big mouth with the net that it makes 
but it creates it outside its body and leaves it behind. And of course, birds make nests and, um, and beavers make dams. A beaver has to make a dam just as like a beaver has a big flat tail that it, it slaps. It, it has to make dams and it makes dams of a characteristic type, a characteristic height, with characteristic materials in a characteristic manner. And uh, beavers will do this innately. There's another whole topic about bird song, for example, and whether some learned bird songs or... are innate and some are learned and so on. But the beavers make the dams innately. But the amazing thing is, and then I'll shut up, the amazing thing is that the beaver makes a dam. It modifies the environment, okay? And when it makes a dam, it, it changes the shoreline. So instead of having like a little creek, now you have a pond with a large perimeter. And this, this modification of the environment that the beaver makes acts as a selection pressure on other animals, right? Different kinds of fish and plants can now thrive in this different uh, watery environment than they could before. Uh, as much as if the beaver were predating these other animals, right? Like if we understand that predators modify change, you know, our selection pressure on prey. So here the beaver now is, is modifying the environment. And it's almost acting like a predatory force on the plants and animals around it. And, and that's pretty simple to understand, although it's a little step from the beaver predate, actually predating these animals. But see, here's the thing. The beaver not only modifies the evolutionary trajectory of other species, it modifies the evolutionary trajectory of its own. The beaver creates a dam outside its body, which is now a feature of the environment. And that creates a selection pressure on the beaver. So beavers, let's say, with bigger lungs that can forage a bigger perimeter thrive more than beavers with smaller lungs now that a dam has been built. And then beavers with bigger lungs can, in the next generation, want to make, let's say, bigger dams. So you get this feedback loop where the animal is programmed to make something outside its body. That feature now circles back and modifies the evolutionary trajectory of the animal. And you can have a kind of breakneck uh, movement down this evolutionary path. And the argument that, that I make in Blueprint is, in essence, that, that we humans knit the people around us or modify the social networks around us. And therefore, particular kinds of humans can thrive. You know, friendly people make friendly networks and friendly networks are especially conducive to friendly people. Now, there are wrinkles and complications to the story, but that's the gist of it. Hmm. Well, two things. First, uh, please don't worry at all about going on too long because I am much more interested in hearing you speak than me. And then second, uh, taking this more toward humans now, at the outset of Blueprint, you identify a number of innate proclivities that would obviously bias our social interactions in certain ways. And a few that you mention in a cluster are uh, in-group favoritism, trade complementarity, social hierarchy, collective cooperation, uh, network topology, social learning, and evolved morality. But before we talk... I don't think I include trade complementarity and evolved morality in the social suite. So I'm not sure which list... It's not in the social suite. I'm not talking oh. about that yet. Uh, oh, but okay. yeah, before we talk, well, talk about... about the story about... <laughs> the story about when I was a boy playing with those Turkish kids, you mean? Yeah, yeah, that's what um, I'm talking about. 
Yeah, yeah. But, but before we get into these items that I just mentioned, uh, I'm just curious about the state of the investigation of the into the genetic basis of these traits in humans, because I recall from reading some of uh, Trudy Mackey's work on the genetic basis of, I think it was mating dances and drosophilia, that these traits are so often polyvalent and highly complex. I mean, in that the genes that determine them are polyvalent, that it's difficult to pin down the actual genetic basis of yes. the traits or the behaviors, even if you know that they're genetically determined. And this just makes me assume that since human behavior is, I mean, levels of magnitude, even though that's, I mean, a rough way of putting it, more complicated than the flies, the actual genetic basis of the behaviors that you're describing in the book, it must be very far from untangled. Correct. And and like any kind of, they're very, you know, the the, the most people when they think about how different variants of genes play a role in different phenotypes. You know, remember the classic examples of thalassemia and sickle cell disease from uh, high school biology or the, 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 the smooth and the rough peas, you know, that Mendel looked at, which, which were, as you said, you know, monogenetic traits. But, um, but, uh, but in, in most animals, a, a given gene affects many traits. That's called pleiotropy. And, um, and when it comes to behaviors, uh, there also um, not only does any given gene affect many different phenotypes. So, for example, uh, uh, I'm making this up. You know, a gene that affects uh, uh, hair color might also affect uh, you know anxiety. Um, that's a completely made up example, but you know the same gene might play a role in both of those phenotypes. But also, any given phenotype has many genes that help explain it. So, as you suggested, it's a it's a complicated mess. And in humans, we have very limited understanding. Now, we have some, you know, for example, we have certain genes that are associated with schizophrenia. We have certain genes that are known to be associated with educational attainment, but explain only a tiny fraction of the variance. So uh, most of educational attainment has nothing to do with our genes, but some of it has a little bit to do with our genes and specific genes have been isolated that um, or for which variants of those genes help explain uh, such outcomes like schizophrenia and, and so on. Um, however, having said that, there are animal models that are increasingly well, well worked out that are, um, amazing. So one of, one of the well worked out examples is some work with, um, with a certain kind of mouse species, old field mice, uh, that Hopi Hoxtra at Harvard has worked out. So these mice make a burrow under the ground and make a particular kind of burrow with a, with an entrance and then a little, um, uh, a sort of cavern that they, they live in. And um, and the kind of barrel burrow they make is innate. So, like if you um, if you uh, put the mouse in a cage and give it sand and and wood chips and other natural materials, it'll just make this kind of burrow. Now, there's a different, closely related species that makes a slightly different burrow. That, in addition to certain other modifications to the feet, to the neck entrance and the cavern part, has an escape hatch, builds a little escape hatch. And through some ingenious experiments, where she and her students uh, crossbred these mice and then isolated the genes that were responsible, was able to show that whether or not the mouse constructed a burrow with an escape hatch, this physical feature in the environment outside the mouse's body, depended, I think, on two or three specific genes. So if you had variants of particular variants of these genes, then the mouse made a burrow with an escape hatch, otherwise it did not. 
So here's an example of an exophenotype under the control of a very limited set of particular genes. It's a complex behavior. It's shown in, in mice. Uh, and there are many other examples, not many, there are a handful of other such well-worked-out examples that I discuss in the book. And this, in combination with other evidence uh, in, in humans, suggests that something similar is happening in humans. You know, with other, you know, we don't build burrows. We we do other things. Uh, uh, you know, that that's what's going on. So... Again, I'm not at the social suite just yet, but I did want to ask about a couple of the technical terms I mentioned a few minutes earlier, and because I think when they're interesting, but also important maybe going forward. So the first is technical, though I already just said that, but what is network topology? Well, so network topology is just the... Um the mathematical structure of a network. So, for example, in your mind's eye, imagine a uh, hundred buttons that are strewn on the floor, and I give you um, five hundred strings, and the buttons have holes in them, and uh, I tell you to pick two buttons, let's say at random, and connect them with one of the strings, and you do that, and then I say now pick it, pick two buttons at random again, and connect them with a string, and and you do that till you exhaust all of the strings. And uh, if you look down on the floor where you've done this exercise, you'll have a gamish of buttons and strings connecting buttons together, and it'll have a particular visual appearance. Now, you should have the intuition that by ch in this exercise that I just imagined, in this Gedanken experiment, you know, in this thought experiment, uh, you will have... Um, some of the buttons might never have been picked, so they'll have no strings attached to them. And other buttons might have been picked a lot, and they'll have many strings attached to them, and so on. And if you look down at this image, now you can imagine you'll bend in this gamish of buttons, you can imagine you pick up a button and you lift it into the air, and if you do that, the, the button you picked will come up, and then there'll be a layer of buttons that are one thread removed, and then below that, a layer of buttons that are two threads removed, and so on. And you pick this up and then you move over here and you drop it on the floor again. Now, if you take a photograph of it, the photograph will be different. It'll look different than when you picked it up. But you should have the intuition that there's something deep that hasn't changed about it. That's the topology, right? The structure, the, the pattern of interactions among the buttons specified by the, the threads is invariant to its rendition in two-dimensional space. There's this hyper-dimensional structure defined by the nodes, the buttons, and the threads, the ties, the, the edges, it's, they're sometimes called, but it's invariant. So that's the topology of the network. That's the structure of the network. And um, now the structure can also vary. You should have the intuition that if you repeated the exercise with 100 buttons and the 500 threads, you would get a different structure, right? It's not the same the next time you do it. Um, and... And furthermore, you might have the intuition that there are specific classes of structures, of topologies. So you might imagine that in the, in the extremes, you might have, let's say, 30 students in a classroom. None of them might be friends with anyone else. That would be an empty set. There are no connections among the 30 students. Or in the other extreme, every student is connected to every other student. That would be a fully saturated graph, a full set. So those are the two extremes, no connections, every connection. 
the number of every connections is n times n minus one divided by two. So 30 times 29 divided by two is the number, the maximum number of connections. And you should have the intuition that any possible combination in between those is, is possible. And there are classes of, of those possibilities that can be understood and um, and that and, and those classes, those particular topological classes have relevance to human experience. Let me give you one example. Uh, there's a property of human social networks called assortativity, degree assortativity. And that's the reality we're all familiar with, that popular people befriend popular people and unpopular people befriend unpopular people. The degree of a node is the number of connections this has. So degree assortativity means they assort with each other. The, the popular people form friendships with popular people and the unpopular people with unpopular people. That's called degree assortativity. We all know that's a real feature of social life. But if you stop and think about it, airports, the airport network is the opposite of that. Airports are degree disassortative. You don't have Chicago and Denver and New York all connected to each other and then small airports in Lebanon, New Hampshire and, and New Haven, Connecticut and and uh, you know uh, and Greensboro, North Carolina or something connected to each other. No, we have a hub and spoke system. So the unpopular airports are connected to the popular airports and the popular airports are connected to the unpopular airports. Now they're also connected to each other, of course. You can fly from Denver to LA, but the unpopular airports, of course, you are connected to the popular ones, not to each other. So the airport network is degree disassortative. And humans make degree assortative networks. So of all the possible kinds of networks, like I was discussing earlier between the null set and the full set, we make a, a, a subset of them that obey this other guiding principle called degree assortativity. Hmm. Did I answer your question? You did. Absolutely. Yeah. And... Presumably, then, if in studying multiple multiple societies, you found their social networks converging on similar topologies, yes, modulo, of course, that there can be different types of networks within a given society. One hypothesis, maybe the preferred one, might be that we have an inherent disposition to form such structures uh, in an analogous way, say, if you found an isolated group of humans with brown hair, you would assume that this was an inherent and hereditarily transmitted trait. Yes, the argument is that um, there is, of course, tremendous cultural variation in many features of human life, including in friendship. There is some variation. So, for example, in, in Saudi Arabia, you wouldn't find many male-female friendships, right? It's a very sex-segregated society, whereas in our society, it's not uncommon to have genuine friendships between men and women. So there's a cultural shaping of the networks. But what we show, and we've mapped, my lab has mapped networks around the world. We've mapped networks amongst the Hadza hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, amongst the Nyangatom in Sudan, uh, in Honduras, in India, in, um, in the United States. We've, we've done many, many exercises where we have gone and mapped, discerned the structure of these networks. And all of them obey certain deep and particular mathematical principles. So the argument is that the kinds of networks we make are like beehives. You know, we 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 have certain underlying um principles that are shaped by natural selection and genetically encoded that oblige us to have particular kinds of networks. And one one way, one sort of 
thought experiment or one toy way of thinking about this is to ask yourself the following question. When I, if you could have interviewed my grandmother, who's now dead, who was born in the 19th century. I missed my opportunity. Yes. If you could have interviewed her about what life was like for her in this little Greek village in Southern Greece, when she was an 11 year old girl, um, she would have said, I had uh, one or two best friends and there were four or five of us girls we hung out together. We were close friends. And if you could have asked my daughter, Eleni, the same question almost 100 years later when she was 11 and she had an iPhone in her pocket, she would give you the same answer. I had one or two best friends. There were four or five of us girls we hung out together. So there's something very deep and fundamental that is invariant to the technology. Not a lot like the iPhone you know, suddenly transformed us into a different kind of animal. You know, we didn't suddenly develop the capacity to have a hundred intimate friends simply because we had an electronic device that could, you know, have their phone numbers in uh, on file and their photographs on file. We have a very innate proclivities to friendship, and um, and they don't vary very much by historical epoch or, as it turns out, cultural surroundings. So, you know, there, friendship is found in virtually every society. The features of friendship are very consistent. People feel good in the company of their friends. They uh, will pay a, pay a price to benefit their friends. They act altruistically towards their friends. They uh, Gift giving is a common feature of friendship. Um, intimate conversations are a common feature of friendship. You know, these are very, these are cultural universals and um, friendship is. So, um, so, uh, so that's, and, and, and now, it is the case that institutions can shape it. You know, which friends you have will depend on, you know, what kind of social environment you grew up in. Um, the, um, you know, how big your high school is. Um, the, uh, you know, what kind of dormitory arrangements exist in your uh, college. You know, whether you go to church or not. You know, all of these are, of course, important to, um, to the human experience of friendship. But there's something deep and underlying that is not so sensitive to those types of um, cultural and historical historical specificities. Mm -hmm. And maybe touching on one of those, but with regard to uh, our proclivity toward friendship that you were just discussing, the other quality I wanted to ask about before we move on uh, that you mentioned in this anecdote about the Turkish children in the book is trade complementarity and how maybe just as an example of how something that factors into our um, proclivity toward friendship. Yeah. So the story in the book was that um, when I was a little boy, my mother was a Byzantine Greek. She had grown up in, um, in Istanbul, ethnically Greek growing up in Istanbul. And uh, my mother there's a long and interesting family history there with intersects with the history of the 20th century. In the 1950s, there were sort of anti-Greek pogroms in, um, in, um, in, um, in Greek, in Turkey, my, my, my mother's family basically fled the country, but many years later as an American citizen and, uh, my mother took us back. I was a little boy. I went back to Greece. My mother spoke Turkish. And uh, I learned a little bit of Turkish when I was a boy, and we spent a summer in the in the kind of ancestral place where my mother had spent the summers when she was a little girl on this little island on the Bosphorus in Turkey called Biyukada. 
That's how the Turks call it. The Greeks call it Prinkipos. And, um, and uh, we arrived there and we went out to play. I mean, I don't know how old I was. I must have been eight or something. And my, my brother was six or something. And uh, we went out to play and we found some Turkish boys to play with. And um, it was very easy. I mean, you know, <laughs> these games were the same. And, uh, and we sorted ourselves into groups and engaged in some kind of war play warfare where we were throwing pine cones at each other and accumulating stocks of pine cones and lobbing them at the enemy and, you know, maneuvering for advantage. And it was joyful and fantastic play. I, you know, this is uh, more than 50 years later and I remember it fondly. I remember the experience of playing in these pine forests behind, behind the house. And the reason I tell the story in the book is that there is a um, long tradition in anthropology and in psychology to study a huge and fascinating literature to study the origins and functions of play and the way in which certain kinds of play don't vary from place to place and culture to culture. And one of the arguments about play is that it is um, is that it is prepare it's it's a it prepares us to live socially. And that if you think about a lot of ch children's play, it's a, it's about getting along with others. It's about creating little social situations and so on. And so here we were, cross cultures. You know, we had different haircuts and different attire and spoke different languages, me and my brother and these Turkish boys. And yet we had a wonderful time. And the rules of play and the social rules of play were very obvious to all of us. And we were able to engage in this activity uh, uh, quite happily and quite productively. And this activity was characterized by a number of features, one of which, as you mentioned, was this trade complementarity. We very naturally developed a little economy where we were trading, you know, small pine cones that were like this big with big ones where the petals had all erupted open. And, you know, we were doing all kinds of things that were features of society and, on, and of economies. Hmm. Well, I think now is a good time to move into the social suite, the meat of the book, and perhaps some more uh, controversial material. And so one thing, I mean, maybe what we I'm should- I'm relieved to hear that nothing I've said so far is controversial. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Okay. Yeah. Go well, it's on. not controversial for me. I, it, it all makes sense and resonates. But what I had in mind now, I'm taking it uh, on your word that this is controversial, which is- uh, cultural universals uh, because you, yes. you mentioned in your book that they've been a topic of very hot debate in the anthropological yes. literature. Yes. So it's an old, this is also an old and interesting topic, which is are, are there qualities of human social life that are invariant? For example, the gender division of labor is found in basically every society. Now, what, what men do and what women do will vary from place to place, but the fact that there are so-called male jobs and so-called female jobs, I think, is found in every society. So there's, But there's a big debate about, about this, about whether there are cultural universals, what those cultural universals are, and if we were to find them, what would it mean? Would it mean, for example, that those have arisen because of... Um, uh, uh, some kind of, let's say, uh, evolutionarily shaped process, you know, are they like genetic, quote unquote, 
or perhaps they simply relate to fundamental physiologic needs. For example, every society is concerned with the acquisition of food. Well, the necessity of eating is a biological you know, function of human beings, and we evolved to like salty and sweet and fatty things. And so societies around the world will concern themselves with the acquisition of food and, and privilege salty and sweet and fatty things. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised if we find that sweet things are universally liked uh, that relates to our physiology. It's not, you know, it's not, um, it would be, let's say, universal. So, um, so, but there's some, there's a contention as to, as to how, as I said, which things are universal, how many things are universal and what explains their universality. And the claim that I'm trying to advance is that certain specific things, for example, love is a, is a universal and and I'm trying to advance the argument that love has been shaped by our biology, by our evolutionary past. The, um, you know, like other animals, we reproduce sexually. We mate with each other. Um, of course, there are some creatures that reproduce asexually, but uh, most creatures, uh, most is, I mean, it depends on how you count species, but, you know, um, a, a vast number of species reproduce sexually. We do too. But we don't just uh, mate with each other. We we love each other. We form a sentimental attachment with the individuals with whom we are having sex. You don't need love to have sex, to be clear. Um, you don't need sex to have love. But generally speaking, we um, we have a sentimental attachment to the um, our conspecifics that we are having sex with. And this capacity is an evolved capacity. It has, a, I think, a very interesting, likely evolutionary origin and, and function. And one of its functions is to enhance the survival of our offspring. But I think it's kind of magnificent to think about that this extraordinary human ability for love, which is seen in homosexual couples, it's seen in straight couples, it's seen in polygynous societies, it's seen in polyandrous societies, it's seen in societies with arranged marriage. Uh, you know, it, it's seen everywhere. Love is seen. Um you know, is, is a pretty remarkable, to me at least, uh, quality that we have. And it's one of the things that I, I put in the social suite. To be clear, what I, what I argue about the social suite is that it's a set of um, properties that are biologically encoded, shaped by natural selection, required for social living, and expressed inter-individually. In other words, we don't care whether you love yourself or are kind to yourself, or are just to yourself. We care whether you love others, or are kind to others, or are just to others. So these are qualities you see that require someone else to be to express. You can't befriend yourself. You befriend someone else. So all of these elements of the social suite have to do with our the interaction with others who must necessarily be present for these qualities to be manifested. And um, that makes it different, for example, than other kinds of behaviors like bravery. You can be bravery against brave against another person who's threatening you, or with another person when you go to let's say I'm going to work with you to go you know kill a lion or something. But you can also be brave on your own, right? Uh, try to kill the lion on your own, or try to leap across a cliff on your own, right? That that calls for bravery that you can manifest by yourself. But love is different, uh, or friendship is different, or cooperation. You can't cooperate with yourself. You have to cooperate with someone else. The presence of an altar 
to your ego is required for the manifestation of these qualities. And those are the, for example, another one I have is mild hierarchy. You can't have inequality in yourself. There, to, to have inequality, there must be someone else. There has to be a group for there to be inequality and mild hierarchy. So all of these features in the social suite have these, these um, properties that I, I alluded to. Mm -hmm. So just in the interest of getting it all out on the table, I'll enumerate these eight aspects of the, uh, the social suite. So you already mentioned love for partner, well, love for partners and offspring, and then mild hierarchy. But the other six are the capacity to have and recognize individual identity, uh, friendship, social networks, cooperation, uh, preference for one's own group, and then social learning and teaching. But hopefully, uh, to paraphrase somewhat accurately what you just said a few minutes ago, and then to get clarification if this isn't quite accurate, is the idea roughly that not only were these eight qualities ingrained in us and by extension our societies through natural selection and that they have to be expressed among individuals collectively, but also, and here's where I might be adding something, they are in a sense optimal for our flourishing in a competitive world? Yes. Yes. In order to have a functional society, we need to express those things. I need to be clear about something else, which is that you can have stunted societies just like you can have stunted bodies. You know, your genes shape the kind of kidney and liver and pancreas you have, the kind of brain you have. But if I starve you when you're a child, you don't grow as tall, you're, you, you might be more prone to diabetes. Your brain doesn't make all those wonderful connections that it needs to make when you're young. So you can have stunted bodies, but that doesn't mean that you weren't innately programmed to have a kidneys that worked a particular way and a pancreas that works a particular way. You've just been redirected by the constraints of the environment. And the same can hold true for our societies. You know, if you, if you take a group of people and put them in an environment that's, let's say, has plentiful resources versus one that has scarce resources, you might find that they, the manifestations of the social suite are different. And one of the chapters of the book, I try to look for natural experiments of this. So I, I look at a whole variety of things, but one of the things I look is at shipwrecks. You know what? What? Um, you know, there, there were uh, over seven thousand shipwrecks during the um, European uh, period of exploration of the Earth between fifteen hundred and nineteen hundred. And I found 20 examples of shipwrecks where at least 19 people had been isolated on their own with no contact with other humans uh, for at least two months. And I, I tried to treat this as a natural experiment where, you know, uh, a group of people had been suddenly thrown together and left to their druthers to make a kind of society. What kind of society did they make? And, and how did the kind of society they make, what role did it play in their ability to survive? Uh, now, there are many problems with this natural experiment, but it's it's entertaining to look at these stories, uh, and they they, um, they certainly serve a rhetorical purpose, but they also provide some instruction. And there are many other better experiments that are discussed in the book. But anyway, so the point is that uh, that 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 you know we in order to make a funk we 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 have a we are predestined to make a society with these features. And when we make societies with these features, we we thrive. We do better than when we when we lack those features. Okay, so again, to and it takes tremendous cultural pressure to stop them. So if you look at totalitarian states, 
uh, many totalitarian states see the family and the love that might exist between. Um, so, for example, just to step back, another set of things I look at is not just unintentional societies like shipwrecks, but intentional societies like communes. And for thousands of years, we have records of people saying, society screwed up. We don't like X, Y, or Z quality of society. Let's go out and make a new society. So a group of people will go into a mountain or woods or something and try to make a new society. They've been doing this since Roman times. And and I think, by the way, we're on a, we're about to have another, in the United States, every, every generation or two, we have a peak in communes, communitarian movements. I think we're about to have another one, actually, in the United States right now, historically speaking. But, um, but uh, for these types of communal movements, sex and intimacy between couples is a threat, whether you have a charismatic leader or not. Because what they want is they want the members of the group to have a primary fealty to the group or to the leader, not to subcomponents of the group, like to their partner. So, so paradoxically, one of the solutions to this challenge can go to either extreme. You have groups like the Shakers would say, okay, no sex. You can't have sex with each other. You know, we're going to take that off the table. So you're really going to just feel a, no special devotion to another person. You're just going to feel devotion to the group. Or they go to the other extreme and say, okay, anyone can have sex with anyone else. We're kind of have a free, you know, everyone, everyone's an available partner. So no special partner on that extreme either. So, so, but, but those you see are cultural forces that are being applied to stop this innate desire to have an intimate, loving relationship with a particular person, with one person, let's say, or again, leaving aside, which is discussed in the book, polygynous, a polygamous, a polygamy. Friendship is the same. You know, you can have a situation like the Stasi in East Germany. The Stasi, I think it's been now ascertained that they had like 50% of the members of that society were informants. So in that society, you couldn't trust anybody. Uh, you know, you couldn't whisper to your friend, you know, the kind of conversation we all have with our close friends where we're reveal private thoughts and in information. You couldn't say to your friend, my God, this government is, is really screwed up because the person you're speaking to might be a secret informant and rat you out and you would go to prison. So, you know, it, 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 it broke the, 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 the application of the, 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 the secret police was, uh, you know, broke or, 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 or cleaved or constrained this very natural tendency to have friendships, but only for so long, right? I mean, all, a tremendous cultural force was applied and it only succeeded for so long before, you know, we went back to our innate desire to have friendships, which by the way, I mean, you can also make the argument that certain political rights, and I don't make this argument in the book because my book is not about historical forces, but but I do argue that um, political arrangements and cultural attributes that try to suppress these natural proclivities are doomed to fail. And um, I mentioned the Stasi just now, and conversely, there are political arrangements that try to work with rather than against the social suite. So societies, for example, that preserve the freedom of association or even the freedom of speech can be seen as a as a kind of um, political arrangement that supports social learning. 
which is part of the social speed. Like, right, the flow of information that the, 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 we live in, in, in networks in part so as to distribute useful information to each other. And, and we thrive when we can share information about how to build a fire or where there are predators or prey or how to make a particular tool. We are cultural animals. We evolved to be cultural animals. And, all, and that at, at its root, that is about the sharing of information across time and across space. It's to our advantage to do that. And arrangements that suppress that are um, not natural uh, in a way. And, um, and therefore, you could make the argument that arrangements that constrain the freedom of expression are just like arrangements that suppress the freedom of association or that try to suppress love or all of these other qualities. They're, they are fundamentally not in keeping with the social suite and therefore I would argue unlikely to succeed or unlikely to live, lead to a thriving society. But, but these are things I'm talking, I mean, I kind of allude to some of this and talk about it briefly, but that's not the main, the, the, the book is not a political project. It's not trying to say, here's a cookbook for how to build a good society. That's not what I'm interested in. Yeah. It, dwelling for a moment on this picture of stunted societies, in, in a nutshell, the claim is that on an evolutionary basis, forms of society that uh, deviate considerably from these universals would be inherently unstable or unfavorable, unfavorable. And it's interesting that, like you said, this isn't a supposed to be a cookbook. It's interesting, or at least a major upshot, that a normative claim arises from the descriptive work here, which at least facially goes against that adage that you can't yes. derive an ought from an is. Well, here I make use of Philip afoot, right? Uh, you know, in the moral psychology of the late 20th century. And, um, you know, her famous essay, right? The one on, um, damn, I'm blocking on the title right now, but the first sentence is a magnificent first sentence, which is in more in moral philosophy. I think it is helpful to think about plants. She says, what a magnificent sentence for a short essay. And um, her argument is that, you know, after the after the Second World War and the horrors of the Nazis, it really threw moral philosophy into a tizzy, because how could we understand that there's any kind of objective morality, or how could we explain the existence of such evil? This was a real problem for the moral philosophers. And so there was a lot of ferment. I'm sure you know this better than I do. I just sort of dipped into that literature. But there was a set of ideas about the philosophy of morality. And in that stream, Philip Afoot, Philip Afoot argues that you can make an argument that something is good when it... You, where do you find like a fundamental objective basis for making a moral claim? Like where... How do you reach a kind of solid foundation to say, well, this is good and this is bad? Well, is it not all just arbitrary? You know, maybe we define the Nazis as bad, but from their perspective, they were good. Who are we to say what's right or wrong, right? So they're slipping around in this mess. And then they begin to try to look for, the moral philosophers try to look for, please correct me because you may know this much better than me. They try to find, well, what is a good, a sound foundation? And Philip Foot argues that we can say that something is good when it's in keeping with its nature. So, for example, the purpose of a clock is to tell time. Therefore, a good clock tells time correctly, and a bad clock does not. And uh, with plants, 
the purpose of the roots is to nourish the plant. So we can say you have good roots or bad roots, you see. So this is her solution, which I kind of embrace to say that the, the you know, we can say that a, a, a society, that these qualities are good insofar as they are uh, crucial to having a functional society, right? In order for a society to, to, a, to, to be a society, it must have these, these qualities. Anyway, that's the, the sketch of the argument, uh, which, which is towards the end, uh, end of the book. I don't know whether you find it satisfying or not, or it still leaves you wanting. So metaethics is, I mean, that's what the discipline would be called in philosophy, is a bit outside of my ken, but I'm, at least at this point, not a moral realist, so I don't believe that there are moral facts. I think these things are sort of constructed based on our intuitions, but there there's nothing objective about them in the way that uh, facts about physics might be objective. Would you would you be willing to say that this, a, a predator has sharp teeth or dull teeth? I think I would be willing to say that at least. I mean, and would you be willing to say that the sharp teeth are better for you've observed that the sharp teeth are better for hunting prey than the dull teeth? Yes. Well, I mean, it's in that in, it's in sort of in that vein that I would say that love is is better. Than, yeah, than yeah, I, I'm I'm totally willing to admit that. Absolutely. Uh, um, so so that's taking sort of a pragmatic attitude to things. Yes, I would I would acknowledge that that it's that that the foundation that we're resting on is a kind of functionalist one, right? We come to say, well. Uh, you know, you, let, let's stipulate that we need to tell time. Let's stipulate that clocks exist. Now, having made those stipulations, can we define a good clock and a bad clock? Um, so, yes, I acknowledge that there might be other predicates to the to where we where we find ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, one last question that I wanted to ask about the social suite while we're talking about these cultural universals and the extent to which cultural universals in general are controversial is whether any of the eight are more controversial than others. Because for instance, I mean, to just take, take the first one on the list, the capacity to have and recognize individual identity, it can't really be debated, or I don't see how it could be debated as one, not evolutionarily ingrained, but also not necessary or important for human social flourishing. So are there any that don't meet uh, these two well, criteria, it, obviously? Uh, in terms, if, if by controversial you mean what is the evidentiary basis for the claims, I obviously don't think they are controversial in that sense. And that is, I think that the evidence of the centrality of those qualities is, is quite compelling. But there are a couple that are controversial in other senses. For example, mild hierarchy and in-group bias, which are two features of the social suite we haven't talked much about. There's a lot of controversy about their how natural they are, uh, how extensive they should or shouldn't be, um, whether they are positives or negatives. So, for example, a Marxist. Mild hierarchy. <laughs> yeah. We are not. We are not an egalitarian species. 
Uh, even amongst hunter-gatherers, when you go and you look at inequality in hunter-gatherers, you find inequality there. For example, if you measure the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of economic inequality, uh, it's a number that goes from zero to one. In zero, everyone has the same resources. At, at one, every one person has all the resources and everyone else has nothing. Uh, the United States right now has a Gini coefficient of 0.4. That's at a century high peak. Uh, we're a very unequal society. Morocco has a Gini of 0.4. Scandinavian societies would have a Gini's much lower, 0.25 or something like that. But if you go to hunter-gatherer societies, even there, there's economic inequality. Uh, it's been measured like 0.12, for example. So there's some de minimis inequality that is present in any society in terms of, uh, well, a lot of it relates to uh, genetic variation, right? Some people are born faster than others and stronger than others and smarter than others. And uh, and these this natural lottery and talents can then give rise to a kind of inequality, let alone the social lottery, which is another thing. Some people are born, let's say, into richer families than others, even in hunter-gatherer societies. So the natural lottery endows us with different abilities. This gives rise to some de minimis inequality. And, um, and, and there have been studies looking at a fantastic study uh, that I cite in the book, for example, uh, so-called knockout studies where uh, working with the troops of primates, uh, the experimenters can go in and remove the leader. And then what happens in that society when you remove the leader? And you try to make it more equal, let's say. Well, chaos breaks out. You get a lot of fighting amongst the other other primates as they're competing for who can be the top dog and so on. Uh, so there's a whole set of arguments that I discuss in the book about the benefits of mild hierarchy. But so so on the one hand, we're not a completely unequal species, but we're also not a very higher overly hierarchical species. You know, for example, we're not like walruses or um certain kinds of deer species where for instance, one animal dominates all the mating opportunities, you know, like, you know, one male or will, you know, kill all the other males and then have access to all the females, let's say. So we we have mild hierarchy and um, and 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 there are advantages to mild hierarchy, it turns out. Advantages in terms of the flow of information, the suppression of violence and so on. But not too much. If we get too much hierarchy, we band together and we kill the despot. And this draws on some work by Richard Ringham and other uh, and uh, other uh, primatologists who've uh, who've looked at this topic, and I and I discuss all of that literature in the book. So so we have we have a kind of um, mild hierarchy. We have a certain amount of hierarchy that is intrinsic to our species, and that actually is advantageous in a number of ways, some of which I've alluded to. But there's controversy about this, right? There's controversy. Well, well, how much is the right amount of hierarchy, and how much is too much, and uh, why do we have any? And maybe we don't have any. Maybe we shouldn't have any. Maybe we truly are egalitarian, which I think the evidence rejects uh, that claim. Um, the other one, which is a bit controversial, is this it, it depressing to me too? It is, which is in-group bias. You know, why is it that everywhere in the world, people prefer the company of those they resemble? Resemble can be defined. All kinds of ways have my same religion, have my same, are, eat the same food that I do, live in the same place that I live in, speak my language, whatever the hell it is. It's very arbitrary, which is another thing. We 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 have 
we make arbitrary distinctions, but then we become very committed to them. Um, for example, there's some famous experiments with, with little children, toddlers, that can be randomly assigned to yellow and green t-shirts. We can test and the toddlers understand that there was that it was random, that they, they didn't do anything to get given a yellow or a green t-shirt. And then as soon as we do this, this is called the minimal group paradigm, the toddlers given the yellow t-shirts really like the other yellow t-shirted toddlers. And the toddlers with green t-shirts, they're awful children. They should be punished. You know, I mean, it's just an absurd, absurd. You can just, just scratch the surface and elicit from us this preference for our own group, even over a trivial thing like t-shirt color, even to tiny children. So everywhere in the world, we see this in-group bias. The question is why, and there's a very interesting set of ideas, I think likely true, that this, this in-group bias co-evolved with our capacity for cooperation. Let me give you a little toy model, and then I'll shut up, uh, that uh, explains this. Imagine you have a thousand people, the population of a thousand people, and you go to those thousand people and you tell them, be nice to each other. If you all work together, you'll it'll be better for you than if you don't work together. If you cooperate with all these thousand people, you'll have a more thriving population and you yourself will fare better than if you are selfish and don't cooperate with these thousand people. Well, even in telling this story, the listeners are probably thinking, darn, that's hard to cooperate with a thousand people. You know, I might never, I might be nice to someone and never see them again. Why would I be nice to them? I'm, you know, there are a thousand of us. I might never see them again. Or I can't track them. Like I was nice to you, but now uh, I don't recognize you when I see you again because I can't track a thousand people and know who a thousand people are and so on. But now imagine that I come to this population of a thousand and do something which is known as give it structure. Uh, I issue to this these thousand people 10 flags of different colors, a green flag and a purple flag and a brown flag and so on. And, uh, and now I form 10 groups of 100 and people are walking around holding these flags. And now I say to you, you know what? Just be nice to the people that are holding your color flag. You should think you probably are feeling more relaxed. That's an easier job, right? I could just be nice to people holding the purple flag and I can ignore the others. I don't have to be mean to them. I don't have to send them to the ovens to burn them. I'll just be nice to the people with purple flags. And it turns out that when you do that, you get more cooperation. The amount of cooperation seen in the thousand people and in each individual on average is higher when you've added structure to the population by forming these groups and by encouraging people to just be nice to the in-group. You don't have to encourage them to hate the out-group. That's another wrinkle, which is interesting. Just be nice to your own group. So there are very deep and likely true arguments that our capacity to be nice to each other, to cooperate with each other, to act altruistically, co-evolved with our capacity to make arbitrary distinctions between us and them, and then to be nice just to us. The question is, why so often do we also hate them? Because there's no obvious reason we should hate them. Maybe just being nice to us is enough. And there's another set of ideas as to why we often come to hate them, although it's a little less clear. Anyway, in-group bias is another feature of human social order that is a bit more controversial. Hmm. Well, 
I'd like certainly to- depresses me. Like of the social suite, that's the one that's most depressing to me. Like I find it, I almost didn't want to. I wanted to be dishonest and not include it because I didn't want to talk about it because it depresses me that we are such a parochial species. You know that we are we like us and hate them. But I think it is a feature of social life. It's seen everywhere, in every group, in all times. It's it's not possible to suppress it. You can try, if you're a totalitarian state, to require everyone to wear the same attire. Um, but it's very difficult to eliminate this. Mm-hmm. Well, r- returning now for a moment to the mild hierarchy universal... Much of this conversation, we've been talking about how our genes play a role in the erection and then the subsequent structure of societies, but not so much how individuals' genes might put them into different positions in social networks. That's right. And is there much work done here? Uh, So I'm reading right now Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, and I talked to Paul Bloom recently as well. I'm not sure if this came up there. You've been speaking, you've been speaking to all my friends. Danny's a friend and Paul is a friend. Yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. And Steve, that's great. You have really good, really smart friends. But I mean, if somebody's got a square jaw, they're, I mean, they're, they're very likely to be, they're more, all other things being equal, equal they're more likely to be put into a, a higher place in an organization if they look a certain way, this sort of thing. But I'm I'm wondering if there's m- much work that you've li- looked into relating to how people get placed into social networks based on their genes. So I'm, I'm less interested in that. Um, I can imagine I, that that's very controversial, Ed. You can, yeah. Well, it's not so much that I'm shying away from controversy, uh, but I'm much... My my sort of characterologically, I'm a kind of optimistic person who thinks good of the world and um, likes to focus on good and happy things. And uh, I mean, I spend a lot of my time earlier in my career studying death and um, end of life care. So it's not like I haven't studied sad things, but at the moment, I'm sort of interested in accentuating the positive or studying positive qualities that humans have. I'm also more interested in universals than in in uh, non-universals. And so, but it is the case, as you suggest, that people will be randomly assigned, as we talked about earlier, by the natural lottery. I mean, some people will be born with severe developmental delay, or some people will be born with anencephaly, you know, no, no brain. They die within days of hours of birth. That's totally unjust and is a working of the natural lottery. People will be born with all kinds of advantages and disadvantages. And this is a fundamental fact of of being an animal, which we are. In addition, there's a social lottery, and this has been appreciated by philosophers for thousands of years. Thomas Jefferson writes magnificently about the social lottery, and um, Aristotle does, Plato does. I mean, you know, they're, and often, well, anyway, that's another topic, but but I think... um, I think uh, it's the workings of the social lottery that typically forms of government should try to to stop, right? Like we, 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 we have a sense that 
both can be unjust, the natural lottery and the social lottery, but we have a sense that the social lottery is especially unjust, right? And that we might, for example, want to implement progressive taxation to undo the workings of the social lottery. We might also want to provide for uh, public funds to have braille signs everywhere so that people who are born blind because of the natural lottery, we as a society are going to try to redress the workings of the natural lottery. Um, and so I, I do think about these things and I certainly do talk about them in Blueprint, but I'm, I'm less interested in studying you know, the genetic determinants of schizophrenia or diabetes or developmental delay than I am in studying the genetic determinants of, of um, social order. Did, did I answer your question? I'm not sure. Yes, I, you did. I, you totally did. Well, to end, what I wanted to ask is if there are any problems or maybe strong points in today's culture, maybe we, sh we should uh, restrict ourselves to the United States, that you can identify because they're either intention or copacetic with the eight universals in the social suite that you've identified? Well, I think, um, you know, there's this, uh, in the book, I talk about how um, B.F. Skinner, the behavioral psychologist at uh, Harvard, who did all those famous experiments with pigeons, and um, he writes a novel called Walden Two, uh, which becomes a bestseller unexpectedly. And some people buy this book, this novel about a fictional, it's actually about a professor and his students, uh, sort of odd, uh, about, uh, who set out to make a kind of uh, society that was guided by the principles of behaviorism, which happened to be Skinner's expertise. So it, it's a fictional, it's a novel about a communitarian movement a commune, the establishment of a commune guided by behaviorism, the novel becomes a bestseller. Some people buy this novel and uh, then actually use the novel to set up real societies. So there's uh, some communitarian societies that are set up that I discuss in the book, one in Mexico, one in Virginia, that uh, use this novel as a guide for how to organize their commune. And... Um, so I don't intend for Blueprint to be like that. I don't. I don't intend for the book to somehow be a, a guide for um, political arrangements, even though I think it's relevant to, very relevant. I think to how you have a good organ, a healthy organization, or a good organization, or a good company, or a, or a good society. I mean, the title of the book is "The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society." Is the subtitle of the book, and and of course, it has a very almost prescriptive title, right? Blueprint is a pretty powerful word. I'm not unaware of these things. So having said all of that, I'm wary of making political pronouncements, but I will say the following thing. One of the things about the social suite we haven't talked about is, you mentioned it, is individuality. And it's 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 sort of almost a paradox that that in order to be a social species, we have to have an individual identity. And in our species, we use our faces to do this. We we communicate our individuality through our faces. All of our kidneys to do their job should work the same and look the same. But for our faces to do their job, they should all look different. And actually having the different faces is an evolutionary luxury. I mean, ask yourself, why don't we all have the same face? I mean, we don't. 
and the capacity to have different faces is an evolutionary luxury. Not only that, but you can recognize different faces. Uh, you And this takes a huge part of your brain is allocated to facial recognition, to saying that this person is not that person. So the ability to communicate individuality and to detect it is an evolutionary luxury, and it is required for social life because if you want to be able to signal this, you know, I am your offspring, feed me, or you've had sex with me, not someone else, or you owe me something, not someone else. I was nice to you, not someone else. You should repay the favor. You need some way of signaling this is me and the other person to be able to detect it. So, so individuality is individual identity is a crucial part of the social suite. By the way, if you lived on your own, you wouldn't need to do that, right? Like, again, the, the irony is that, that, that our capacity to, to communicate our individuality requires someone else. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother. Why would there's no one else to perceive it? Why would we have an individual identity? So, so when you look at our current political problems in our society, they come from this kind of tribalism. You know, earlier picking up the example, we have a, a thousand people that are divided into, you know, a, a ten groups of a hundred people, and they're fighting with each other these divisions. And there are basically two ways to address that conflict, both of which have political predicates in our society. One way is to recognize that these divisions are arbitrary and to go up a level to the group of the population, to say, we are all Americans. And this is like the science fiction trope, you know, when the aliens invade, all of the previous divisions between countries and within countries are thrown out because we all are united against a common enemy. You know, we're all human beings. And you have this kind of sensibility that we are all together. And so one way to address the divisions in our society is to go up a level and say, look, we are all Americans. And in fact, this is something that has been appreciated as a feature of our society for hundreds of years. De Tocqueville writes about this, you know, writes about this sensibility that anyone can be an American. We're a nation of immigrants. You just come to this country and you buy into certain principles and you're an American. Other societies, by the way, aren't organized this way. It's very difficult to become Japanese or become Swiss, uh, you know, politically. But anyone can be, in principle, become an American. So, so that's one solution to our problem is to go up a level. But the other solution to our problem is to go down a level. One of the solutions to the tribalism that's so ascendant right now that says, well, you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're black or you're white, or you're, 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 you know, you're Christian or you're Muslim, or or all of these divisions in our society is to go down a level and to recognize that we're all, first of all, unique individuals and that our membership in these groups is arbitrary and maybe not so important. And this is actually Martin Luther King's solution, right? Martin Luther King says, I look forward to the time when my children will be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. That they are that we see each other as unique individuals, not as mere members of the purple flagged or the green flagged uh, group. So these solutions to our current tribalism, which is causing us so much problems, are solutions that exist in us already. We have access to those solutions. We can go up a level and see ourselves as part of a greater whole or we can go down a level and see each other as unique individuals worthy of respect 
and cherishing. Well, uh, Nicholas, this was, I mean, totally terrific. And that was also a, a great note to end on. I've really wanted to talk about anthropology and evolutionary biology on the show for a very long time. And this was so worth the wait. Um, thank you so much for your time and your work, of course, too. Thank you so much for having me, Robinson. It was a pleasure. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so. 